On the record. On News Talk. You are listening to On the Record. Kieran Goodie with you until one o'clock today. Five three one zero six is the text number. As always, that costs you thirty cent. Or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Goodie. Now, people will remember that last week we covered the Swedish general election, and part of the narrative around that, and around a lot of elections really in Europe over the last few years, has been about the rise of the right and the rise of nationalism, the rise of populism, the rise of all these bad things. Well, to discuss this in more detail, whether this is really happening, whether these are actually bad things, whether we need to treat this with a little more nuance, is David Thunder, who's a researcher and lecturer in the University of Navarra's Centre for Ethics and Culture. David, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We might talk a little bit about, um, because I've been reading some of your writings on this, about this idea of of nationalism. And nationalism, I suppose, is a bad thing, really, in, in recent times, is how it's been described. You might talk to me, though, about the value of nationalism or the value of these communities, imagined though they might be? Yeah, I mean, basically, although there's a lot of suspicion nowadays towards nationalism, people have a natural need to identify with a community. We're born into families, after all, and um, we can't really make sense of our lives unless we can connect our life with the life of uh, a bigger community, whether it be a village or a city or, or a country. And nationalism or nationalist ideology or nationalist ideas basically try to help us connect with a larger community by articulating the culture and language of that community and the values of that community um, and helping us feel a part of that community. So are are they kind of contrived ideas that really exist within our own minds as a way of kind of identifying with the people around us? I wouldn't say they're completely invented or fictitious, but certainly there is a narrative that is developed. And so it's a kind of a mix between ideas and values that are genuinely shared by people in that area or by a lot of people in that area. And uh, if you like, a creative elaboration of those basic ideas and values. But it's very difficult to say to what extent it's kind of fictitious or uh, a creation and to what extent it's actually exactly the way people behave and think. It's very difficult to make that distinction, I would say. So so you have this, I suppose, shared set of identities maybe that we buy into, as you said, to identify with each other and to give us that sense of community and shared experience. Exactly. That sounds like it's a good thing. You know, it sounds like it's something that kind of is, is I suppose, is part of human nature. We're gregarious creatures that, we're, you know, yeah. we should want this amongst yeah. each other. Is there a point at which it becomes a bad thing or is it just misunderstanding that we call it a bad thing or, or what is that? Well, I mean, human beings are a mix of good and evil, I would say. And um, throughout history, we've had the um, the danger of slipping into, for example, excessively tribalistic attitudes where you uh, treat an outgroup as the enemy and you sort of stereotype them and treat them as, as just completely unacceptable. And um, in that sense, there is always a danger of tribalism and war. The First and Second World Wars were an example where nationalism became a kind of tribalism, I would say, where the outsider is the enemy, pure and simple. Okay, so kind of exclusionary tribalism is bad nationalism. I know that's a very simplistic way of putting it, but essentially that's kind of maybe a starting block, is it? I think that would be a starting block, but we just have to be careful not to say that every form of exclusion is wicked or unjust tribalism, because every single community is based on in and out rules. I mean, you can't have a sustainable community if you don't have certain criteria for inclusion and exclusion. 
Yeah, okay. This is what I want to talk about then, the criteria for inclusion or exclusion, because I suppose the criticism of some nationalist movements in Europe in recent times is that they are exclusionary and that they are a rejection of, of, I suppose, the multiculturalism that people would have celebrated up until relatively recently. Is that a fair reflection of these movements, that they're, I suppose, overly exclusionary, or is that too simplistic a read? I would say that, based on my interpretation of these movements, they do have excessively exclusionary tendencies, and they do tend to oversimplify the narrative of national identity. That is certainly the case. But I would also say that our reaction of both journalists, academics and politicians against these movements has been excessive and disproportionate because these movements also represent ordinary people who have legitimate concerns about rapid changes in their communities and certain kinds of threats to the cohesion of those communities, but are not given any kind of platform or any kind of opportunity to air their concerns and to properly discuss them. So you mean our reaction is excessive in the sense not that we overestimate the strength of this argument, but rather that we don't give any credence to, I suppose, genuine concerns? Yeah, we have a tendency to dismiss them wholesale and to say, well, look, they're nationalists, so or they're, you know, they're the right wing, hard right or whatever. So we don't need to really entertain their concerns because they're ridiculous. Um, And I think if you treat them that way, you drive them underground and you drive them out of the public sphere. And then they grow. They grow because citizens don't hear their concerns echoed by their mainstream politicians. So they have no choice, many citizens, but to turn to these sorts of movements. These concerns, have they then become crystallised in recent years because of, you know, multiculturalism I mentioned and and fears Mm. of immigration? Is that what's kind of fueling these concerns? I would point to two developments that I think one is a certain form of economic insecurity because of economic globalisation where people just don't feel as secure in their jobs because the labor market is much more fluid and um, job security is, is much less than it, it might have been before. That would be one consideration, um, a reaction against sort of uh, globalization or glo- a global economy. But the other consideration you mentioned, which is very important, is the vastly increased levels of immigration in Europe. And not only the levels in terms of, say, quantity of immigration, but also the origin of immigrants, which now is not only European countries, but is countries from the Middle East, from Africa, really from parts of the world that don't have a natural affinity with European culture necessarily. And so that creates certain kinds of tensions in local communities. And the other thing I'd point to is that in certain countries in Europe, there is, and we have to acknowledge this, there is a disproportionate level of criminality among immigrant populations from certain countries. Um, And that's just a fact that has to be has to be acknowledged. And it has implications for how immigrants are viewed and how we interact with them. Yeah. And then but on the flip side, because I know people will start texting in and they'll say, but that point as well is exaggerated in some areas. Like I know there was a headline in the Daily Mail in the UK about 40 percent of crime in London was committed by immigrants. And then someone pointed out to you about 50 percent of the population of London were immigrants. So actually they were particularly law abiding. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some these statistics are often manipulated. But I mean, I have been looking at some of the statistics in, in Germany and um, it does seem as though certain immigrant groups such as from, say, Nigeria. And I don't want to say that all people from Nigeria, for example, are criminals or something that would be ridiculous. But the particular people who are coming into Germany from countries like Nigeria have a disproportionate participation in, say, criminal organizations. 
when compared with their numbers and compared with the average German participation in those groups. Um, criminal organizations have a higher immigrant, let's say a disproportionately high immigrant participation in Germany specifically. Now, you'd have to look at this country by country. But my, my only point is that these are security concerns that really have to be discussed in terms of the intake of immigrants, the profile of immigrants, and how we screen them. And they're just not getting a serious discussion in the public sphere outside of these right-wing groups. You know, you mentioned some of those statistics. Now, I don't have them in front of me, but if I take them at, say, uh, I think at face value, look, that is the case, that we don't talk about them. Is it for fear that there are certain things, and I'm kind of pointing the finger really at myself here and others in the media, that we don't want to talk about because if you talk about a certain immigrant community being disproportionately involved in crime, that essentially you're just going to be labelled as racist, the people who agree with you will be labelled as racists, these kind of far-right, tribalistic, as you say, might describe them, nationalists, and, you know, that actually you're the dangerous people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a fear that's hanging over public discourse um, around this issue of immigration, um, and it's exactly what you're pointing to, that people literally are afraid to speak openly about their concerns because they think that if they articulate any concerns about, um, the, say, say, immigrant population, that they will automatically be, be labelled as racists, xenophobes, neo-Nazis, or, or what have you. Um, and the trouble is that this kind of political correctness ends up driving that discourse underground, and it prevents those claims from being properly tested in the public sphere. And when they're not tested, of course, lots of uh, exaggerations and lots of distorted claims kind of can gain currency in popular culture. And uh, we shouldn't be afraid of an open conversation. And do you see, obviously, I met people who are listening at the start would have heard me mention that you're based in the University of Navarra's, but even from your Irish background, is that a part and parcel of public discourse here as well, that there are certain issues that people skirt around that don't want to talk about because fears of, of what labels might be thrown at them? Yeah, I think that this is something that obviously we, we've seen. It happens in Germany. It happens in Sweden. Um, it happens in Spain about certain issues. Um, I would certainly say that I've noticed following media coverage and general sort of talking to friends and family in Ireland that there are certain kinds of issues. And obviously right now we're talking about nationalism, immigration, but there are lots of issues surrounding conservatism, Christianity, social issues uh, in Ireland, such as divorce, abortion, same-sex marriage. Um, although we're going a bit off topic, but I just want to point out that, yes, there is a lot of fear surrounding discourse on those issues, precisely because people are afraid that they'll be labeled as backward or as bigots or as racists if they dare to question, if you like, the status quo or the most popular position. Well, if anyone listening wants to label myself and David anything, 53106 is the text number. Get them in. That costs you 30 cents. As always, you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Goodhey. David Thunder, researcher and lecturer at the University of Navarra at their Centre for Ethics and Culture. David, thanks a million for speaking to us today. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. On the record. On, the record. on News Talk.